All right, all right. Well, welcome, everyone. We're so glad that you are hanging out with us today. Once again, if I haven't had a chance to connect with you yet, my name is Tyler West. I'm the founding lead pastor here at the Vine Church. Thank you for making space to hang out with us today. So I just want to say, uh, as we've been going through this series called Mastermind, we've been having a little bit of fun with each other, but what we've been talking about is that thing that our grandparents told us, and we've been rallying around this idea there are many things our grandparents told us, right? But that thing our parents, our grandparents, our teachers and coaches told us many times was, it's all in your head. And as we get older, don't we realize that? Like when we're younger, we realize it can be 80% physical and 20% mental. But as the physicalness starts to wane and the physicalness starts to go away, we realize that it really is a battle <laughs> in our head, isn't it? So most of the battles we have in our life are won or lost in our head. And so what we've been talking about is if it is really all in our head, what if that's not necessarily a bad thing? What if, if it is all in our head, we could use that to propel us to be all that Christ made us to be? So to kick off today, I'm getting ready. I'm rolling my sleeves up because these are some good questions. It's going to take a little bit of unpacking. I've been loving to get to know each and every one of you uh, all the way through. Uh, throughout this series and uh, throughout these, this season, I guess, is the better answer. Uh, so I've been loving starting these off with some questions each and every week, and I promise they'll make sense as we go through the message. So I'm going to answer this multi-layered question first, and I'm going to ask you to answer it. Maybe comment on there. I read all the comments after the fact as well. Uh, so comment on there if you're watching online, whenever you're watching. If you're here in the house, comment and the answers to this as well. And here we go, here we go. What's your favorite plot twist, movie, TV show, or book? I'm going to answer all three, but here we go. Your favorite plot twist, movie, TV show, or book? I can't wait to read these answers. Plot twist. So, you know what I mean? Like, it just surprise endings. When I was growing up, my favorite was The Sixth Sense. I know that that's crazy, but when I was growing up, it was a weird ending, yet you did see dead people. Spoiler alert. <laughs> hey, Bruce. Hey, Bruce Willis, how's it going, right? Like, yes, it was just a different one. Maybe yours was The Empire Strikes Back. Maybe that was a plot twist for you. Maybe it was The Hunger Games. Maybe it was, maybe it was uh, Lord of the Rings. Whatever that was, what's your favorite plot twist? Maybe it was a Mission Impossible movie. Those had some crazy plot twists, didn't they? Maybe, whatever that is, what's your favorite plot twist movie? Hey, maybe it's not uh, a plot twist movie that's your favorite. Maybe you had a favorite plot twist TV show. And I'm not talking about the daytime soaps. <gasps> no, I'm just kidding, right? Like always, right? Like always. How many people get killed on those things and come back to life in like seven seasons later, right? All the way through, right? I shouldn't know the answer to that. But how many of them do that, right? One of my favorite TV shows uh, that had that is one I caught on later, How I Met Your Mother. Sad ending, but plot twist ending. Wasn't that a little bit crazy? Maybe you like the X-Files or... Maybe you like uh, Unsolved Mysteries. I guess that's a different plot twist, isn't it? That used to come on. Whatever that was, maybe that's a TV show that was a plot twist you enjoyed. Uh, maybe your answer was a book. Uh, one of my favorite plot twist ending books, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you two Orwell books. 1984, George Orwell, plot twist ending, awesome book. Recommend reading it. You might be surprised how much of it is uh, true now as a child of 1984, I'll tell you. So I will tell you, it's a different 1984 or Animal Farm. Had some plot twist endings there maybe you like that lord of the flies maybe you like any of those books stephen king novels maybe you're into that plot twist all the way through but 
Today, I can't wait to read your answer to your favorite plot twist movie. Now, here we go. Here's the second question I'm going to ask you. What's the favorite plot twist in your own life? That may take some thought, right? So you may not be able to answer that fully. What's your favorite plot twist in your life? Maybe they said yes to the second date. Maybe, maybe, they, uh, maybe the, uh, the, the car broke down on the first date, and that was something that was totally a plot twist. Maybe you showed up to the wrong date, and it still ended up being the one you married. Maybe it was something different. I don't know, but whatever it is, what's your favorite plot twist in your life? And my answer is I'm living mine. If you know anything about me, I knew I was called into ministry as a teenager uh, and, and, and saw some crazy things happening in the church and, uh, for lack of a better term, ran like hell and told God there's no way that I would be coming back to Spartanburg. <clears throat> and uh, so here I am as a pastor of a church in Spartanburg and downtown Spartanburg getting to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. But it's a plot twist because I never would have said, if you would have told me 10 years ago this is what I'd be doing, I would have still told you you were crazy. If you'd have told me five years ago this is what I would be doing, I probably still would have told you you're crazy. There's no way that this is what God has for me. But the plot twist is in my life, he knew and he's writing my story, he knew the best plot twist was the one that I'm getting to live out now. And so for each and every one of us, that's kind of what we're going to be unpacking today as we wrap up this Mastermind series, because we're going to be talking about this idea of cognitive reframing. We'll get into more to that in a second. But the first place I want you to get is in your Bible, where we've been every week, we've started with 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and get there in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 10, I have my marker there uh, eloquently. Uh, I love that our Vine production team will make sure it's on the screen if you're watching wherever you are. But maybe you like to do things digitally. I want to show you once again how we partner with the Bible app each and every week and show you how you can follow along on that today. So you want to download the Bible app from your favorite app store. Once you do that, you're going to open it up. Once you open it up, you want to make sure that you click on the More tab. And when you do that, make sure your location services are on. And then you're going to click on Events. Now, once you click on Events, you're going to see the Vine TV Worship Experience. You're going to see the title of today's message, which is going to be Cognitive Reframing. You're going to see all the scripture we're going to walk through, a place for you to take notes, but also a place where we can connect together throughout the week. So let's go ahead and get into our Bible and talk about this thing called cognitive reframing as we start in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5. And it says this in verse 3. Paul is writing, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul is a giant in the faith. We've been talking all the way through this, and we can see through all of his letters to the church the battle that he was fighting in his mind. When he started writing those letters, if you remember, when, when him and Barnabas had their little spat and, and they split up, we can see Paul was really losing the battle in his mind more than he was winning. And as he got to the end of 2 Timothy and the pen falls silent at the end, we can see that he's winning the battle of his mind more than he's losing. So we're looking at this letter he wrote to the Corinthian church and saying, okay, our thoughts are important, so why are they important? Because we can demolish strongholds in our life through Christ Jesus and our thoughts play a part in it. So the strongholds that we are talking about demolishing and we've rallied around in this series 
is defined as this for what we're walking through, a regular, consistent, unbroken thought pattern that blinds you to any other possibility. I'm going to say it one more time. A regular, consistent, unbroken thought pattern that blinds you to any other possibility. And today is like the hallmark pinnacle point of that stronghold that we can have. And so today we're going to talk about that and this idea called cognitive reframing. Cognitive reframing. And I'm going to start this today where we started our series at the beginning. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. So if you have a regular, consistent, unbroken thought pattern that blinds you to any other possibility, can we see that that can be an issue? So we have to learn to think correctly. So we're going to learn today how we can cognitive reframe because in our life, uh, when we think about things, the first time we do it, it takes a little bit of time. But the more we think through something and the more we think about it, it's easier to think about it. For example, the first time you drove your car and you put it in reverse, you remember how nervous you were? You checked every mirror. You looked ready to go. You put the car in gear. You checked the mirrors. You made sure nothing was around you. And after about a month of doing that, how many times did you do that? Rarely ever. So, I mean, I can tell you, like, if you're ever in a Verizon parking lot, if you know, you know, I've confessed it, repented, it's okay. But, like, if you're ever there, I now look when I go backwards, whoever you are, Jesus loves you. I want to let you know. Uh, but, like, we, when we put the car in reverse and we do it over and over again, it almost becomes a habit. That's why we can drive home so many times and then all of a sudden we'll be three red lights down the road and think, did I just run that red light? I don't know, because we get in just this mode, and that's called cognitive bias. We just get in this mode because it's easier to think about it, so we just do it. We just do it without thinking. Our muscle memory kicks in, and we do it without thinking. Well, sometimes that's a good thing. Driving your car, eating your food, walking, sometimes those are good things. Once we've learned it, we can go riding a bicycle. We use that example a lot. Those are good things, but here's the thing that can be a problem. And why we have to learn to cognitive reframe. When we form this cognitive bias, sometimes it will inaccurately paint the world through the lens of our personal preference, through our experience or our belief. So in other words, so many times what we'll end up doing is as you get older, we talk about experience. So when you hear a rattle in the dishwasher, or excuse me, in the uh, garbage disposal, you know the sound of silverware versus ice cube versus anything else because you've heard it before. Well, that's all well and good, but what happens if the situation you're facing isn't that? Your cognitive bias kicks in. And sometimes it can give you an inaccurate view of the world, which plays into that stronghold, which blinds you to any other possibility and blinds you to the outcome that really could happen if God is involved. So we have to learn in our life how we can cognitively, cognitively reframe. One more example before I get in here. I'm, I'm blistering you with examples at the beginning, but I think it's so that we can connect. If anybody knows me, I don't watch the news much. It's uh, very depressing, uh, so I just don't watch the news much. But it's crazy, even in this world we live in. If you ever watch the news, I'll just be honest with you, uh, just see what kind of commercials they'll have, and you'll see the agenda they have. I don't care where you are on the spectrum. You know, donkeys and elephants to me when it comes to politics could care less. Uh, but when it comes to the news, it can get really depressing. It really, really can. And so the thing is, you can have two cameras, two news cameras side by side, 
covering the exact same event at the exact same time, seeing the exact same people, but because of the lens they paint it through and the frame that they show it, it will have two different stories to tell, won't it? That's a cognitive bias. That's a lens that can be incorrect. And so many times in our life, our cognitive bias kicks in and what we see in front of us, we think reality is truth. And the only truth can come from God, can only come from Christ, the unseen, not the seen. Yet so many times in our life, our cognitive bias kicks in and we keep rolling into that stronghold and we wonder why we're depressed. That's why I don't watch the news much because it just kept bringing me down. It just kept making me more depressed and I couldn't figure out. And I was like, boop, turn the channel off. So much easier. Man, yes, I don't know some things that are going on and it's great. It's so great to be ignorant. It is bliss. It's so great to be ignorant sometimes. But what we can see in our life is our cognitive bias will kick in and it will place us in a moment where we will think is a reality and facts and it couldn't be farther from the truth. So that's what we're going to be unpacking today in our life is we're going to be talking about how we can break this flawed framework of cognitive bias through this idea of cognitive reframing. So if you've got your Bible... I want you to keep Mark 2 Corinthians because we're going to come back there at the very end, okay? But I want you to keep turning left in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to hear a story when it comes to this cognitive reframing. I think it's going to drive home the point of how we can have a cognitive bias and how we need to reframe our thoughts by looking through the correct lens. And we're going to hang out with this guy named Elisha. Not Elijah, but Elisha. If you know anything about me, I'm going to talk about these guys a lot. And this story is such a huge, huge example of how what we see may not be what's really happening. So if you've got your Bible, let's get to 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 8. And we're going to be in verse 8 through 12 first. And it says this. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. Now Aram, if you don't know, it's in Syria. So think modern day Syria, they're Assyrian army, Arams. Uh, Aram is where that is. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such a such a place. The man of God, that is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on that place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. Look at Elijah. How many of us would like that in our life where somebody says, don't go there, don't do that? Well, if we're in Christ Jesus, we do. It's called the Holy Spirit. We just got to listen to it. So many times we don't want to. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But Elisha saying, hey, don't go there. This could be a bad spot for you. It could end in disaster. Don't go to that place. Verse 11, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which one of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. How creepy is that? 
When I go back to 1984 and things are being watched, I'm just saying, like I think of that, somebody knows the words that are said in your bedroom, I think of that so many times, I'm like, they probably don't want to hear what it was said in my bed. They don't want to, whoa, that'd be crazy. But Elisha, the man of God, was looking at a different lens, and so many times in our life, listen, this is where we can get stuck. Our cognitive bias will kick in, like the king of Aram will see, he said, if I could just go get this man, we're going to find this out, if I could just go get Elisha, all this will be, all this will be solved. We're going to see how God writes that story and how that cognitive bias is wrong there. So if we want to break cognitive bias in our life and have this idea of cognitive reframing happen, I'm going to share four ways to do that today. The first thing we got to do that we can see as this story started to play out is we got to thank God for what didn't happen. Thank God for what didn't happen. How many times do we do that in our life? I'm terrible at it. I'm just going to put my cards on the table. I'm terrible at it. Many times I'm mad that I'm late instead of thanking God that I got there safely. You see, the king of Israel in this moment, we don't see his side of the story. We don't see that it took him four times as long to get from point A to point B because he was avoiding the king of Aram. We didn't see that he had to wait for Elisha to send word to him where the king of Aram was before he could go get something to eat. You know what I'm saying? Like, it took him that long, but yet... We can see in this moment where we can be, our cognitive bias will kick in so many times. For me, my bias would be, well, the fastest way from point A to point B, that's how I want to go. I want the quickest route, not the longest route, not the one that's going to take the most time, not the safest route. I want the quickest route. That's why it's called the shortcut. If it wasn't the shortcut, it'd be the way, right? Like, it's got to have some challenges along it, right? Like, that's why I want that. But so many times in my life, it gets me in trouble. And so when I get safely from point A to point B, I have to thank God for what didn't happen. I wonder if our life right now, with all the chaos that's going on, if we would just thank God for what hasn't happened, how much different our perspective would be. I wonder if we flipped off that news channel and started thanking God that, hey, man, I've got clean air to breathe. i got two feet under me. I'm able to walk. I'm able to go to church. I'm able to watch online. I'm able to do so many things when it could be so much worse. I got to pull into a parking space with a car with AC, praise God, I got to do all those things and I didn't get hurt in the process. I didn't have to do what they did in the 20s, you know, and I have to go out there and crank, the, crank everything to go, to get the engine going. Thank you God for not allowing me to have to go through that. I wonder in our life if we would change our bias by thanking God for what didn't happen. So many times in my life, if you know anything with my health, it has been crazy. It's been a struggle. And I will tell you, even though I don't feel good, even though I may be sick, I thank God I'm not in the hospital. I thank God I'm not bedridden. I thank God I don't have IVs poked all over me and people trying to figure out what's going on with me. I thank God for that every day because I get to be here. Maybe right now in this season, I realize I don't have kids, but I can thank God that one day I will and I can steward well the ones he puts in my care in this moment. I can thank God that even though I may want to to happen now it doesn't have to happen I can thank God that people care enough to bring their kids to church that people care enough that they trust me with that I can thank God for that maybe in this season you lost your job I wonder if you would thank God that it did happen instead of getting mad at him thinking it's something you lost what if in this season that job you got laid off on was the door God was opening for you to finally step into being who he created you to be. Because when you got nothing, you can't operate on anything else but faith, can you? But when you got this false security, it's real easy to get mad. 
So right now, if you want to break the cognitive bias in your mind, you got to first thank God for what didn't, what didn't happen. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4. We're not going to get there, and we're not actually going to talk about this part in 2 Corinthians 4. But he ends it talking about what if the struggles we walk through right now are light and momentary? He actually says it this way. Our struggles of the present age are light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that is Christ Jesus. What if our light and momentary struggles are just that compared to eternity? Depends on how you look at it. Depends on the lens you walk through. And when I thank God for what didn't happen, my eyes are focused on what's unseen, not what's seen. Let's go on in this story, verse 13. Let's see what else happens and what else we can learn about cognitive reframing today. Verse 13, go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Dothan's a cool place. It means the city of two wells. That's just a little side note for you. That's a really cool place. I mean, that sounds like a cool place. Where are you from? Dothan. You know, <laughs> I'm down in Dothan. <laughs> I don't know. It could be good, good salt of the earth people there. I know it is. So Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, then went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up, went early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. Before we go on, think about that. You've helped the king of Israel avoid getting attacked, avoid getting captured, and all of a sudden you wake up the next morning and there's an army of people outside of the entire city ready to siege it, ready to take over it. Like what is your cognitive bias going to tell you is going to happen? Probably going to die. Like, this is it. Like, this is that moment in my life where it's over. Like, you know, all of a sudden, it's the big one. Like, you know, it's the big one. I'm coming home, Elizabeth. It's this moment in time. Like, this is it. That's why the servant of the servant with Elijah was like, I, I mean, dude, like, you got all this vision. I thought you could see where the king of Aram was. The fool's outside of our city. He's going to take us over. Why didn't you tell me? Like, I could have got outside, got us something to eat. We could have we could have built a shelter, could have got some canned goods. We could have prepped. We could have got some TP. You know what I'm saying? Like, we could have had some moments, but instead, now all of a sudden I woke up and you didn't even warn me? See, that's how I probably would be because I didn't thank God for what didn't happen. But let's go on and see what else happens and what Elisha tells him. Verse 16, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, before we go on, that, now, I'm going to be asking Elisha, <clears throat> now, did you go to that recreational shop? Is it legal in your state? Because when I look outside, I don't see nothing but an army surrounding the city. Now, the ones that are with us, like, I'm counting, like, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. Elisha, what, like, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? I don't see anybody. Dude, I don't see anybody here. What do you mean don't be afraid that they're more than us than them? Like, did I miss that lesson in math? Like, I've ran out of, uh, they got more fingers and toes. Like, I, I, I'm out of it all here, but I only count a few of us. What do you mean there are more of us than them? But look what Elisha does. He prays. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. 
Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, isn't that crazy? His cognitive bias kicked in and said, we're about to die. But Elisha said, no, 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 no. You got to focus on what's not seen. You got blinders on. And he prayed for God to remove the blinders so that he would look through the right lens. And when he looked through the right lens, all of a sudden he saw the chariots of fire and the horses of fire. Which makes me think, remember what Elijah left in? A chariot of fire. I wonder if Elisha got to see his buddy for a minute. I wonder if he was like, dude, do you know how long I looked for you after you left me? Like, I wonder if for a minute he got to see his buddy, but instead he knew that there was something greater at hand here. He, he looks at that, that servant and he says, God opened his eyes. I wonder if we not only thank God for what didn't happen, but we prayed for him to open our eyes to see what he sees, how much different our life could be, how much different our thoughts would be. Because see, when we do that, we not only thank God for what didn't happen, we learn to reframe. If you want to get over your cognitive bias, you thank God for what doesn't, didn't happen, excuse me, and you learn to reframe. The servant had to reframe. He had to change lenses. He had to change the way he looked. He had to change his perspective. He had to change from looking at what was in front of him to looking at what he really couldn't see to begin with. So when he changed his perspective and God opened his eyes, what ended up happening in his life is he realized that the facts in front of him weren't really the truth until he experienced God and he could finally see the truth. You see, in this moment, in this time that we live in more than ever, we've got to experience the truth more than ever, don't we? And the truth may not be through the camera lens that we see it. And so in our life, how we get over our cognitive bias is we learn to reframe what we're looking at. Now, real quickly, I talked about this last week. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. I'm not a psychology person. I know many people think they read a couple tweets or something and that makes them an expert. I'm not. <laughs> I took a semester in college. That's it. But I want to share with you what we talked about last week as we learn to reframe things and see how that affects us. And I want to show you this thing called the cognitive triangle. Now, I told you about it last week. If you're following on the Bible app, you're going to see it. And the cognitive triangle is this. It's our thoughts, behaviors, and emotions and how they work together as one. Now, last week I talked to you about this. Your thoughts, your thoughts and behaviors, your thoughts and behaviors in your life are influenced are influenced 100% by your environment. Your thoughts and behaviors are influenced by the environment around you. Okay, so fight or flight, your thoughts and behaviors. Walking down a dark alley, what's your, what's your response? Walking down a dark alley, fight or flight, your behavior, okay? Behavior, thoughts and behavior are focused on environment and your emotions and your thoughts if you look at that line, are affected by your circumstances. So your thoughts, behaviors are affected by your environment. Your emotions and your thoughts are affected by your circumstance. Now, the reason that this is important for us, I told you last week, if you were to take that line, if you could put something in the middle of that circle, it would be your body. Your thoughts, behaviors, and emotions affect you physiologically in your body, and your thoughts actually not only affect how you feel, they affect how you act. That's why we've got to break that stronghold. 
It actually affects what your body does. I can tell you when I'm in a depressed mood, I don't want to move. I don't want to move. I don't want to do anything. I just want to sit still, and, and, and I want to wallow and, and moan and not thank God for what didn't happen and not reframe it, but God reminds me that's what I have to do. See, in our life, this thoughts, behaviors, and emotions, how it affects us and our body, if you were to look at psychology to this, this would be called the anatomy of an experience. If you look back at any experience you've had in your life, I ask you about the plot twist. You probably remember when you watched it. You probably remember how you felt. And you probably remember how you reacted or behaved when you saw it happen. It affected you. The plot twist. It's an experience. If I say first kiss, it's an experience. If I say first speeding ticket, it's an experience. First car wreck, an experience. First uh, bicycle wreck, I don't know. It's an experience. This is the anatomy of an experience, and this is why I'm sharing this with you. Our experiences in this cycle will create a cognitive bias, and we've got to reframe. The thoughts of the servant were we're going to die. It affected his behavior because he said, Elisha, dude, what are we going to do? The emotion that he felt was death, and his body was probably in shock. Cognitive bias. When we get stuck in this stronghold in the wrong way, it can lead us down the wrong path. But when we reframe and change our thoughts, it in turn changes our behavior, which in turn changes our emotions, which in turn changes our body. So for us, this is important. When we learn to reframe, you go ahead, we're going to take that down. Learn to reframe because in our life, this is why I want to share this with you. You want to know what the source of your experience was. If I say, when did you give your life to Jesus? You remember the experience. When have you been baptized? You remember the experience for good. You remember those good things. If I remember, if I ask you, what's the lowest point you've ever been in your life? You remember that experience. See, we have to know the source of the experience. And I can tell you when we experience the truth and the source is God and who God is, we can't help but have joy. We can't help but have peace. We can't help but have love. We can't help but have faithfulness. We can't help but have goodness and gentleness and, and self-control. We can't help but have that. But when the experience is anything else but God, it will always lead to death. And so for us, the reason this anatomy of an experience matters, I, I talked about muscle memory. I'm going to bring it to sports for a second, but you can relate this to a musical instrument you play. You can relate it to anything you do. If you ever go to a practice for anything, what's the number one thing you do? you got to get the basics. And what's the thing that you repeat constantly? The basics. If you were to think of a musical instrument as scales, right? you got to go through your scales. If you don't learn scales, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. If you do anything else, uh, rudiments, if you play in percussion, if you, if percussion, if, if you don't know rudiments, it's going to be really tough for you to be successful. If you can't do scales and rudiments, that's why you constantly go through repetition of that. I think of sports. The reason baseball players constantly throw, what, 90 feet apart. Think about bases. Think about where the baseline is. Think about 120 being from, from, I think that's right, home plate to second base. I could be wrong. But think about football. They constantly run rep after rep after rep, after rep. And the reason that's important is it trains your brain and gives you muscle memory so that when you get in the game, it changes how you 
play the game. It changes how you play your instrument because you have a, an idea of the basics. You've got muscle memory. That's why when the stress of the game comes, you can't simulate it. You can only play in it, and folks will either shrink in fear or rise up and will overcome it. And that's when you see the people going through the charts that can overcome it, and the people who shrink in fear usually end up in the loss column. When it comes to, to competition or playing the instrument, that's why you give up if you never learn basics and you just learn to tab things and you learn the shortcut. You give up after a while because eventually the shortcut runs out. You got to have the basics. You got to have a knowledge of the basics or all of a sudden it will hurt you. This is what I'm trying to get you. I wonder in our life if we would stop having the muscle memory of fear and we reframed it to the muscle memory of faith, watch how our faith grows, watch how we don't focus on what is seen but what is unseen, and watch how our life completely changes. But so many times in our life we don't like that because that takes time. It takes time trusting. It takes time looking at what's unseen, not what's before my eyes. Let's see how this story plays out as we continue to learn how to cognitively reframe today. Verse 18. As the enemy came down toward him, man, Elisha's my dude in this one. I love this. Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike the army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness. And as Elisha had asked, Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Look, you want to talk about somebody that's operating in faith, the very army that's trying to capture him. He said, God, change their lens and make them blind to the real truth. So their reality was Elisha wasn't Elisha and he was going to lead them to Elisha. And he made them march for 12 miles from Dothan to Samaria. Now imagine what's going through that army's mind for 12 miles. That's got to be a long, long hike. There's no telling how far they came. There's no telling how much they just wanted to get Elisha so they could take over Israel finally and plunder Israel finally. But instead, Elisha says, hey, follow me and I'll lead you to the guy. It's crazy. Strikes him with blindness. God's faithful. This is awesome. After they enter the city, what does Elisha pray? Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were there inside Samaria. So they were blindfolded and then all of a sudden they're inside Samaria. They're away from the city they were going to siege and now they're inside Samaria inside the enemy gate instead of surrounding it. You see what's really crazy in our life is not only we got to thank God for what didn't happen, we got to learn to reframe it. Excuse me. We got to trust God's promise we got to trust God's promise. His promise was he was going to protect Israel. His promise was he was going to take care of them. Now, Elisha's trusting his promise, isn't he? He just prayed that his servant's eyes would be open, and then he prayed that they would be blinded, and he just walked on down there knowing that he could have been captured, and when he walked on down there, he was just... He was the duck with a feather on his back, and he was leading them with a quack, but it was different than they thought. Like, he was getting them there, wasn't he? Like, that's faith. That's faith to trust God's promise that that he would not be delivered into them. Instead, he brought them and delivered them to the king of Israel, the very king that they're trying to defeat. You see, in our life, we got to trust God's promise all the way through. Like I said, we've got to focus on what is unseen, not what is seen. Paul talks about that so many times because what we see may be reality, but reality is not truth. And that's a hard pill to swallow. 
What I see is the lost paycheck. What I see is the job I lost. But the truth is God's preparing me to step into the season he created me to be in. The truth is I don't feel well. The truth is I'm sick. The truth, excuse me, the reality is, but the truth is God says he's protecting me. God would have taken me home if I was done. He wants what's best for me. He wants what's best for you. He loves you. The truth is, if we're committed to Jesus and seeking his kingdom first, our entire perspective will shift that when the enemy comes at our gate, we won't be afraid to say, hey, follow me and let me show you where God wants you to go because he he wants them to go to hell, the enemy. Because remember, Satan, that's the enemy. Yet in our life, so many times we can get stuck and we don't want to trust God's promise. Because it takes us the long way around, don't it? So in our life where we can get stuck, we have to understand that anything that's not of God will fail. Period. It'll fail. I hate to tell you it will. I'm living proof. We all know it will fail. If it's not God and it's not of God, it will fail because it cannot stand. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the world is the only thing or the kingdom of God. One of those two. And anything that's not of the kingdom of God and not in God's promise will fail. No questions asked. I hate to tell you. It may look good for a minute. And reality into the world, it may look successful. But the truth is, it isn't. And so for us, that's what we've got to do. We've got to thank God for what didn't happen. We've got to learn to reframe it. We've got to trust God's promise. Let's see how this story ends. It's really cool. Verse 21. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who have captured your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back down to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. Pay attention to this. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. In other words, what I love about this is the only way they could experience peace is if the army was served and God prepared a place for them at the table to have a conversation that led to peace. And two enemies finally sat down at the table and got on level ground and all of a sudden a conversation happened and peace could be felt. Does that sound like something that needs to happen today? Two things that think they're diametrically opposed and enemies have a seat at the table. I think of Psalm 23. What is it David says? You prepare us to place before me in front of my what? Mine enemies. My cup runneth over. We have to sit at the table. And so that's what ends up happening. And the only way we can do that is not to kill the enemy, but to serve it. But to serve it. My friends, that's the gospel. That's a great commission. We're called to serve. We're called to serve those that may not believe what we believe, serve those that may not do what we do, because that is Christ Jesus in us. That is his promise. So we have to understand in our life that not only do we have to thank God for what didn't happen, not only do we have to learn to reframe it, not only do we have to trust God's promise, we're going to reinforce the point right here. we got to look for God's goodness in every situation. That's what happened here. There could have been a slaughter there. And what do you think the king of Aram would have done? He would have come back up against the king of Israel. And they would have been in this endless war. But instead, 
They trusted God's promise. They looked for God's goodness in the situation. And the very thing that army of Aram was going to seize, the very thing that army of Aram was going to take over, was the very thing God used to serve them. What if we treated our life that way? What if our life was lived in service to others? You want to talk about a full life? Man, it ain't that successful dream. It's living a life of service because that's what blesses others. And if you want to see peace, serve. Serve. That's why the church, you're called to serve. We're supposed to serve to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, so many times in our life, the reason we got to look for God's goodness in every situation is because what you look for, you're going to find. If you look for negative, you're going to find it. If you look for the truth of God, I promise you, you're going to find it. If you struggle with who God is right now, ask him to open your eyes. And I'm telling you, he'll reveal himself to you, but you got a choice to make for it. And I can't make it for you, no one else can. But I want to tell you, in your life, you got to look for God's goodness. Think of it this way. Does anybody remember Where's Waldo? Remember that book? Now, you couldn't turn the page until you found Waldo, right? Now, there were many imposters that looked like Waldo, weren't they? There were a lot of things that looked like Waldo, but you couldn't turn the page until you really found Waldo. But what helped you find Waldo? You look for him. If you want to see God move in your life right now, look for him. He's there. He's moving. Whether you trust it or not, whether you trust him or not, ask him to reveal himself. And the reality may not look like he's moving, but the truth is, he is. And so many times in our life, what we've got to see is, is, is that Romans 8, 28 thing we can say in our life, God works together for the good, all of those who are called according to his purpose, right? What if this light and momentary struggle, he's working together for the good because we're called to his purpose? We're called to his purpose. And the way that we live that out is, ne- is we reject this negative cognitive bias we have, this negative view, this negative thing, that this lens that only leads to death. We reject it. We demolish that stronghold. And we step and look through the lens that is Christ Jesus, and we become all that God created us to be. And I want to tell you something. If I become all God created me to be, and you become all God created you to be, and your friend comes all that God created them to be, my goodness, 12 of them did it and changed the entire world. Jesus worked through them. We can do it, church. The gospel covers it all. The gospel will change it. And so many times we get stuck in that anatomy of an experience trying to interpret God through our circumstance or our environment that, and what we see and our physiological things that we see that we miss out on what God is doing and working behind the scenes. Just like Elisha and the servant was. Now, I'm going to get to 2 Corinthians 4, and I want to read to you this story 100%, kind of the way Paul tells it and what's happening in the Corinthian church. I'm going to read it to you, 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 4 through 12. I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to see how this cognitive bias and cognitive reframing pays off and how it can make our life better by how we can take control of our thoughts. Verse 4, the God of this age, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we preach not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Remember, serve. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. 
our bodies, these jars of clay, these broken vessels he works through by his amazing grace. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we are who are alive are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that this, that is life, may also be revealed in our mortal body. So death is at work within us, but life is at work in you. In other words, Paul says it this way, for me to die is gain if to live is Christ. In other words, if I'm living in Christ, I win. If I die in Christ, I win. Either way, I get to experience the victory that God gave me. I get to experience the victory that Jesus died to give me. But the thing is, I got to look through the right lens. So many times we get stuck because we're at war with our sin nature. That's what those negative thoughts are. We're at war with that sin nature. We're at war with our flesh and what we see constantly. And Satan knows how to change that. Satan right now is so happy because we're so divided. He's so happy. This is what he wants. If the vision can be sown, he's going to do it. So much so, Satan's got two tricks. He's going to imitate, and he is going to deceive. He imitates. He tries to twist, distort, and manipulate God's word because he can't create anything. Go back to the garden. What did he tell Eve? Surely God's not going to kill you. Take that fruit. What did he tell Jesus when he was tempted, when he was tempting him after the 40 days? Well, this is what God's word says, right? He twists, he distorts, he manipulates God's word, and he imitates. And he'll try to twist our lens and our cognitive bias so much so, something will look real when it's not. I always fail at relationships, so this one's going to fail too. I've never been good with my money, so there's no way that I'm going to be able to be good with my money now. I've never been able to, to, to read a book all the way through, so there's no way that I can read this five-page book all the way through. There's no way. There's no way. Cognitive bias. Satan will do it. And when you get to about page three of that five-page book, Satan will say, see, you can't do it. Man, you can't do it. Don't you have something else to do? Don't you got to check that social media feed? Don't you got to see what that friend just bought? You're not going to finish that book. And then after day two, it's like, see, you can't do it. There's no way you're going to finish it. Look how surrounded, look at everything you've got to do today. Those two pages can wait. You can read those two pages later. He'll imitate. He'll start twisting and distorting. And then he'll deceive you and make you think you look like Jesus when you look like the world because he twists God's words. In other words, he'll make you think doing good will make you a Christian. He'll think serving at the soup kitchen will make you a Christian. Giving a tithe will make you a Christian. Serving at church will make you a Christian. And none of that has to do with being a Christian. None of it. It's only by Jesus that we get to do those things. The first thing we have to do is believe and receive that Jesus is who he says he is. We believe that. And then we receive that free gift of salvation. But you see, Satan will distort that. He'll try to get it out of order, won't he? I got to clean myself up to get to Jesus. If Jesus, if they knew, if he knew what I did last night, there's no way he would love me. I'm telling you, he already loves you. He already loves you. And so when I look at this, I look at the world that we live in and oh, that the blinders would just fall off. That people would see that it's just Satan trying to make us look through his lens. Never in my life have I seen the church be shut down for so long and the church have to go through regulations like it is today. 
It's happened in the Bible. I read about it in the Word. I can read about the house churches that started in Acts and then how it spread out. I read about that. But never in my life have I seen that. And so what I pray for myself, and I pray for everyone else, but selfishly for myself, is that God would just open my eyes to see others the way he sees them. That God would open my eyes to see what he would have me do. And that others would do the same. And all of a sudden when we do that and we start looking through the lens of truth, we care more about where somebody spends eternity than the zip code they live in. We do. Or the bank account. Or the car they drive. We care more about that. We care more about eternity than anything else. And so today, right now, I'm just praying that the blinders would go off. Maybe you're in Christ Jesus, and right now the Holy Spirit's been working in you, and the blinders are coming off. And God is opening your eyes to see the truth, that what you see in front of you may not be the truth, that what he is working on is unseen, that it takes faith to believe it. And he's trying to grow your faith muscle. He's trying to grow you, and he's saying, hey, in this moment, you aren't, Maybe where you want to be, but you certainly aren't who you used to be, and that's only through Christ Jesus in you. And so he's taking the blinders off so that you're not caught up in the mess that's happening, and instead you're caught up in the truth, and he's trying to change your thought patterns. So today I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to worship in a little bit for that. But for everyone else right now, I just want to say it to you this way. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you can mold his word to fit a narrative an agenda, a lifestyle that will keep you chained to the very sin he died on the cross to set you free from. Jesus didn't die for a narrative or an agenda. Jesus died to set us all free from sin. That's it, 100%. If we can get that, then everything else will take care of itself. And so right now, maybe the Holy Spirit is letting the blinders come off of you and you can see for the first time that you have the love of a father, that you have a love of the father, the creator of the universe who loved you so, so much, he would rather die than to not be in a relationship with you. And my friends right now, I want you to see that you may think you're surrounded in your circumstance, but as the blinders fall off and you give your life to Jesus, you'll see that you're surrounded by a loving father who wants nothing for you but to be exactly who he created you to be. And so right now, we're going to pray here in a minute. It's not the words of this prayer that, pray, that saves you, but the faith. Because see, in order to have the blinders truly fall off and the scales to fall off your eyes and to see things and frame it the correct way, you've got to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and receive the free gift of salvation he died to give you. That can only come through faith. As a matter of fact, it's not a 12-step program. It's not something you got to earn your way through. It's not memorizing Bible verses, praying a certain way, doing a certain way, thing. No, no, no. Romans 10, 9 says it this way. If you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so right now, I just want to ask you, have you been looking through the wrong lens your entire life because you've never given your life to the only one who can show you the truth? And if that's you today, this is your opportunity to give your life to Christ. So I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads and repeat after me. We pray as a family here for the benefit of those who are coming to the faith for the first time. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner separated from you. I believe you came, lived a sinless life I couldn't live, died the death I deserve for my sin on the cross, but love me enough not to stay dead, 
but rose again so that I may have life. Come take over my life, Lord. Teach me to follow you step by step the rest of my life the best way I know how. And with every head bow and every eye closed, wherever you're watching right now, on the count of three, I'm gonna ask you if you have for the first time received the free gift of salvation, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. If that's you right now and you're watching online, you're gonna see a button that you can respond to that, 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 that says, uh, it's a raised hand and it says, I've given my life to Jesus. If you're listening throughout the week, please reach out to us at prayer at thevine.tv or 864-580-6698. We have a family who wants to walk with you through this and celebrate with you because for the first time, the blinders are off and you can finally see. And for everyone else, I'm about to pray really quickly and we're gonna continue in worship. And I'm just going to ask you in this moment, would you just ask God to open your eyes? And when you do, you'll see that you're running to him and he's running to you and you are not alone and that he is with you and that you're not surrounded by the things of this world, but instead you're surrounded by God who loves you. So I'm going to ask in this moment that the blinders would be taken off and I'm going to ask you to ask God to open your eyes. So dear Jesus, as we get ready just to worship you, I pray more than ever, that our eyes would be open. I pray that the blinders would be off. I pray right now as we've had the Satan try to continue to change our lens and change our focus, that our focus would be on you and what is not seen, not what we see in front of us. That we'd be focused on the truth, Jesus, and who you say you are, not what the world says we are. So in this moment, Jesus, I pray that you would just open our eyes. And I know when you do, we'll leave here better than how we come in. It's in your name we pray, amen.